Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's another episode of Business of Film. This is episode number 61. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. All right. So today, uh, excited to have John Reese uh, with us on the podcast. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners know who John Reese uh, is, but is he is a uh, he's a filmmaker. He is an author of uh, a number of books uh, on filmmaking. Uh, I think his most recent one is called Think Outside of the Box. Uh, but he has also written uh, another book that is called Selling Your Film Without Selling Your Soul and the Modern Move Making Movement, among others. Uh, John is a wonderful speaker uh, when it comes to marketing and distributing your film in the digital age. We get into that in depth on this episode. Uh, John, thank you for coming on the show. And we hope that all of our listeners uh, enjoy this episode. Uh, please uh, send us any comments, questions, anything that you have. You can find us at craft truck uh, on twitter you can email us coffee at craft truck.com and uh also one other kind of special or different thing that we're doing this week uh we had a tweet come in from uh bob wilsley and uh he asked us to tackle something specifically on the on the business of film there was an article in the hollywood reporter uh called what's behind a europe plan that would destroy the independent film uh world and uh, it is a very interesting article. Uh, Bob, thank you for uh, your question, which is basically to talk about this article and what it means for independent film financing. And we do that at the end of the show. So I think at the end of the show, we'll, we'll spend about 10 minutes uh, talking about independent film financing, talking about uh, what this specific article uh, is all about, and if it really is the death of independent film. So uh, if you're interested in that, at the end of this episode... We're going to spend 10 minutes doing that, uh, and if you like that and uh, that, that sort of thing and you want more of that on the podcast, uh, I would definitely encourage you to uh, drop us a line uh, again on any of our digital spaces and, uh, and let us know. So, on to this episode. Here we go with uh, John Reese, episode number 61. I don't know where I first ran into you, but I think it was actually on Seed and Sparks Film Curious uh, Twitter marathons that they were doing, and, and, I, and I was like... Oh, right. Yeah, the one yeah. that we did recently on the PMD, the concept of the PMD, that one. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly it. I certainly I want, I want to talk about that uh, mm -hmm. here on this show as well. But before we do that, uh, I'd love if you could just take a minute or two and introduce uh, yourself uh, to our audience, let them know a little bit about who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, my name is John Reese, and I am a filmmaker. Um, but also an author and also a media strategist, uh, distribution marketing consultant. And um, I started out a number of years ago making documentaries, also narrative. I did a number of music videos. Most notoriously was the Nine Inch Nails Happiness and Slavery video, which was banned from MTV um, and banned all over the world, although now with the Internet it's available everywhere. Um, and... Um, and um, I've made a number, I've directed and produced a number of feature films. Now I'm producing a couple of other films. Um, but I made this film called Bombit, which is about graffiti all over the world. It's B-O-M-B-I-T. Um, and you, we brought it to Tribeca in 2007, and it's around, and we had sold-out screenings. We actually turned away a couple hundred people per screening you know, we thought, you know, we were in really good shape, people standing ovations. We thought, oh, my God, we're going to sell, you know, quote, unquote, sell the film. And, you know, to me, it was the best film I had ever made. And, you know, we were really excited. And that was around the year the market started to collapse. And so we got a bunch of no money offers, all rights for 25 years with no advance. And we're, you know, my producer, Jeff Levy Hinty, and I were savvy enough to know that that's not a way to, you know, you know, to give the film over to someone, you know, you, you raise this baby and, you know, you don't want to turn it over to some orphanage that might just put it in the closet, lock the key, lock, lock it up and throw away the key. And, um, so we basically reevaluated what we were going to do. We decided to work with the digital aggregator, New Video at the time, who has also handled the DVD. And then we, but what we did is basically, or what I did is crafted a hybrid strategy for the film. And um, I went out and um, did the theatrical and community theatrical myself and um, 
you know, parsed out the rights and coordinated them in, you know, what my executive producer um, thought was an innovative way. And he was the head of the board of IFP. And he said, I should start writing about it. And am I taking too long for this? Introduction? No, no, no. I, I, you, yeah. you, you've segued right into a story about, about, right. about your film, and which is like, right. it's great. Go, roll. Yeah. You're on a roll. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, I'm almost done. So he said, I should start writing about it. I wrote a few articles for Filmmaker Magazine as far as like, um, you know, which was kind of like breaking down my process. And people really responded to the articles and felt that I was able to demystify a, um, demystify a very uh, complex process that they were confused by. And so people encouraged me to write a book. I kind of like thought, it, you know, and I had, had a little bit of time at that time and, and uh, decided to write a book, did a lot of research, interviewed a lot of people. So and- well, I, I, I'm, I am going to stop you right there. First of all, yeah. let, let me actually ask you this question, because yeah. the, at its core, it does it, – it takes more than just someone saying, hey, go write a book, go demystify <laughs> the, 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 the process. There's, there's more to it than that, because anybody who sat down to write a book knows, A – it's not as easy as, as it sounds. It yeah. takes a lot longer than you think it's going to take. And staring yeah. at that blank page is really, really, really hard. So yeah. at, to some degree, I got to believe that there was something inside of you that had always wanted or was uh, you know, inspired to want to tell a story about how to help people. So yeah, like, well, where do you think that, that, that came from? Because I just don't believe it was like, okay – it, I'm, this film bombed. Let me, let me, let me kind of, you know, learn from that and convey. There's more to this story. Well, it didn't bomb. Well, I, so I know. Sorry. Let me, yeah. well, let's call it bomb it. <laughs> right. So it just didn't, it wasn't sold in the traditional way. So oh, yeah, fair, f- f- fair enough. Let, let me actually, let right. me, yeah, let me rephrase yeah. that. Because, it, because the, the, the story itself of a film that goes to a market where a filmmaker thinks they're going to sell it in the traditional way and they right. don't, like, that's a great jumping off point. Like, I actually love that story that that's a jumping off point. But I want to come back to the inspiration. Well, to- it's a story for, you know, many filmmakers these days. And even though the market's kind of already changed and it's you know there's more opportunities than there used to be there's still you know a lot of filmmakers out there with films that don't end up selling you know and don't end up you know having a traditional distribution deal of any sort or even part of one so yeah i had been already teaching for some time and i enjoy helping other people and you know and that's you know i really enjoy consulting because i really enjoy helping filmmakers you know um work find something find some kind of strategy not only for this film but also for their careers and so I really enjoyed that process and so the film the book was and I also have my undergraduate degree in economics so I guess in a sense I have this way of thinking about the world which is you know um, as someone said to me I have an ability to take a complex system and explain it in really matter-of-fact terms for lay people so I guess I have the skill and I enjoy talking to people about this, you know, this, this world that we're in. And so I don't know, I just sat down. It seemed like, and I channeled the book for four months. <laughs> it seemed like, <laughs> and you know, that's, realized, a, that's a really short period of time to, to yeah. so a lot of that stuff must have already sort of been in your head. Just, Oh yeah. It was already, yeah. It was already percolating because I had already, you know, I had written those articles for filmmaker magazine already. I had already kind of thought a lot about it. I had already been having discussions with Ted Hope. I think, you know, prior to the book, um, I was the first guest blogger he ever had on the hope for film site way back when, you know, I think we were having, I still remember some early conversations we had by phone, you know, in December of whatever that year it was, I forget whether that was 08, I think it was December of 08. Um, when he was starting up the Hope for Film blog and, you know, we were trying to figure out like what we can do to help this community, you know, and, um, you know, and that's, you know, Ted and I devised a plan for a distribution and marketing lab that eventually was adopted by IFP and integrated into their lab, uh, their, their filmmaker lab. And, um, and then I became a part of that. So, and I enjoy that. And, you know, that's, you know, as I say, I enjoy helping filmmakers and, you know, it's just, part of me that you know i want yeah so i don't know i don't know how else to say it so. no no, no, no. so what in in the process of both writing the book and taking out uh bomb it in that non-traditional fashion can you actually describe what what was non-traditional for it at that time because at the time which was what 2008 you said 
Yeah, 2008. A yeah. lot of the stuff that you're talking about or that the community talks about today didn't exist. Right, right. I mean, some people have been doing similar kinds of things in certain ways, but I think, I don't know whether anyone had quite, you know, created a theatrical um, and I think the way that I had released it, because what I did is I timed the theatrical within a two month window for the ancillaries. So I had, uh, you know, I don't know if I was the first person to do this, but I kind of pioneered like a, you know, I was one of the pioneers of a short window of creating a theatrical that would lead into the, um, that would lead into the digital and um, DVD release of the film. And I also, um, you know, was one of the people pioneering of selling off the website and then also creating other merchandise, you know, and I think maybe and other people had done certain kinds of things, but I don't know if anyone had done it in the way that I did done it. Um, you know, we ended up, for instance, selling more posters off of our site than we in we made we sold more gross in posters off of our site than we ended up selling dvds off of our site i mean the dvd distributor ended up selling a lot of dvds but off of our direct to fan material um you know that was something that was kind of and we packaged them together and so yeah it's hard you know we worked with the the digital aggregator you know to coordinate the release you know so yeah, I guess it was new at the time. Um, you know, it's hard to say, you know, in retro now in retrospect this stuff is so common that, you know, it's hard to real remember way back when what, you know, was specific about it, you know. Well, that it's interesting, you know, common now, yes, but still I mean when you the the, the story you tell about your film you know, and so many aspiring filmmakers, the majority of them in fact, who take their films to film film festivals they don't sell in that traditional way just because there isn't enough shelf space with traditional distributors to, you know, actually distribute a film, nor, is there, nor do they have enough money to acquire mm-hmm. all the great films. I mean, they're going to go through a great film number one, great film number two, great film number three might still be a great film, but there's just not enough money to acquire it in the typical traditional fashion. So where do you, like, if you were to be taking out, you know, uh, a film that you're working on or that you're strategizing with uh, a filmmaker now, and it's today, uh, and the idea is your film is great, you have a shot at maybe making a sale at that, at that festival, but no way are you going to rely on that as your model. Mm-hmm. Like, the model cannot be anymore, I think I'm going to make a sale at a festival because that is... I don't want to say it's ridiculous, but you mm-hmm. but you can't rely on it as your as your only method of potential recruitment. Yeah, so, no, I totally uh, agree. Yeah, so at, that being the premise of the question, where do you start with the filmmaker? What's the advice you give him? Just kind of walk me through some of your some of your thinking. Yeah, so basically, you know, my advice is to start this process as early as possible. Um, and, you know, some aspect of the process is as early as possible, you know, it takes a long time to develop audience and, um, and relationships depending on, and it depends on what kind of film it is. So, you know, the first thing that I do is when I talk to filmmakers or the first bit of advice that I would do is to, the, for the team to create a, to, to determine what their goal is for the film and excuse me. And, um, I don't know if that was recorded <laughs> and, um, and and this isn't uh, you know what I find is a lot of filmmakers say the the you know theatrical release is their goal. Well, that's not a goal. That's like a that's a tool towards a goal. So usually I break the goals down into either uh, money, um, traditional film fame, which they'll think is going to launch them in a traditional career, and and it can do that in in different ways now, but. You know, it's it's more of like a career launch in a more dependent fashion when you're dependent on other people. Um, uh, audience, some people just want their film to be seen. Uh, and some of these goals interrelate to each other. Um, uh, change the world would be another one. And that's mainly for documentary filmmakers. And, you know, um, I'm working with a client now and we just went over these goals again because I just wanted to get back to, you know, we just, you know, because we had set this up a while ago and talked a couple of years ago and just said, you know, look, I just want to make sure we're on the same page in terms of what the goals are. And, you know, change the world is their primary goal. And then the last one was, is, 
developing a long-term relationship with a fan base that's kind of a career part two where you're creating a system of working with a fan base that's going to help you throughout your career, you know, so that you can be, you know, less reliant on the, you know, being dependent on other people to finance your films and a little bit more reliant or more reliant on your, on your fan base. And, um, you know, and there's a lot of tools these days that have been developed along those lines, such as Kickstarter, et cetera, obviously Indiegogo, you know, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, um, and then new ways of distributing a film in terms of direct-to-fan distribution where you're able to capture audience data, et cetera, and hopefully that these people would be supportive of you throughout your career that you can go back to when you're working on another project. Let's let's unpack that a bit because I, I think that that last point or it's actually an interweave of two points that you mentioned. The first is the idea of start early, develop your fan base. And the second one is once you have your fan base, well, hopefully they're a fan base for life. Mm-hmm. But everybody knows how difficult it is in the online spaces that exist, the social spaces that exist, to to actually do that mm-hmm. uh, in a meaningful way where you're not where you have you know really. I, I don't know what the magic number is, but, you know, certainly it's so fragmented and it's so hard and it's so noisy. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you say to the people who say, like, Jesus, I can't get more than 500 people to follow me on Twitter. I can't on Facebook, you know, 2% of my audience sees my my, my, my Facebook posts unless mm-hmm. I'm willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to, to you know, boost a post. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm I'm not throwing... I don't want to be negative about it, but I do want to be critical about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is hard. You know, I'm not saying that any of this is easy. Um, and, you know, I just po- boosted a post on one of our projects and, you know, I spent $25 boosting the post and it resulted in 2,000 views of the, the video that we boosted. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily huge amounts of money that, you know, but you do have to allocate resources for this. It's not like a free process. And this is, it's still something that, you know, I said this in the book that, and it still, you know, hasn't really gotten through to the community that, you know, it's that new 50-50 concept that I talk about in the book that 50% of your work in uh, making a film is is making the film and 50% of the book work is distribution and marketing and, you know, the resources should be allocated as such. Now, that's kind of like a, that's a guidepost. And well, well often- that, that's, it's, that's more than a guidepost. That's like a, <laughs> that's a, that's a bombshell in terms of like that. That is the neutron bomb of paradigm shift. I mean, yeah. Like the the. But I said this. I said this in '09. You know, it's been around for '09. I've written about it. People have talked about it. But and, people don't do it. It, it. Like like that's. I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. In fact, I I agree with you. I mean, even we we had um, uh, Mark Ehrman on the show, which uh, I I don't know what episode it is, but he runs. Uh, Paladin, which is a right. distribution company. Uh, by the way, anybody who's listening to this, highly recommend you go listen to Mark Ehrman for an hour because that guy is an encyclopedia of what to do. But he specifically said you should be allocating in your budget a specific amount of money for P&A. What's mm-hmm. interesting about what you're saying is you're saying, okay, like you really need to think about it as 50-50. So when you're sitting down with filmmakers and they're making their budgets, what are you saying to them in terms of, you should allocate from the amount of money that you've raised on Kickstarter, your investors, sales, tax incentives. How much of that budget is are you practically giving people the advice to say, put this into marketing in your budget? Yeah, I, I would say I would try to say at least thirty percent if you can, even though that's not the fifty-fifty. But you know, I think it's something at least to hold for the future and then, you know, potentially raise more later, you know, some of the money might come from when you're releasing the film and you're folding back some of that money into the release of the film. It's just, and not every film does 50, 50, some people do 70, 30, but it's just, and I never said it, you know, this is an absolute, you know, it was basically in a sense, a neutron bomb shell to get people to re- rethink how they think about, you know, allocating money for films. And, but, but people still don't do it. Like it's so yeah. hard to just, to just a finance the film. Like if, if you had a million dollars to make a film to say to someone, no, 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 you really only have $700,000 to make the film, mm-hmm. but you got to put $300,000 aside to market it. Mm-hmm. it. That is such an uphill battle. 
that the industry you know, because, is fighting. Because, yeah, I totally agree. And it's like, you know, and you have filmmakers who like, I need this money for the film and, you know, we need to re-edit and we need to do this and we need to do that. And it's just, yeah, it's very, it's very difficult. And there's still this kind of, you know, uh, mythology of the sale that's out there. And, you know, and, and, you know, for better or worse, there were more sales at Sundance this year in a long time. It seemed like there's, you know, a lot of those are, you know, the deals aren't published. So people think that there are a lot of money, but they're actually not a lot of money. But this, this mythology still persists and everyone thinks they're going to be the one who gets to grab the golden ring so they don't have to think about, you know, this work that has to happen later. I think you get this a little bit more with, um, with filmmakers who have been around for a little while and have experienced it a little bit um, more. And, um, you know, I don't know. It's, it, it is a conundrum, you know. It's well, let a, me ask you Let me ask you this question then. Let's say... And then one of the, the one thing I will say oh, is yeah, that yeah. some people have, you know, the advent of crowdfunding has allowed people to, you know, at least put that off a little bit and saying, okay, well, we'll do a crowdfunding raise for distribution and marketing. And there have been people who have been successful in that regard, you know, who have raised money to release the film. So, you know, and that is something that at least is encouraging so that they, you know, they've made the film, realize that they need to release the film now and can raise, you know, a decent chunk of change to release the film. So let's say somebody then has uh, raised a million dollars. Let's just use that kind of simple example. And somebody has set aside $300,000 to do this and they are methodical about not touching that money to just setting it aside. Mm -hmm. So... uh, what do you recommend or how do you recommend they actually go about allocating that, that resource now uh, for their film? Well, the first thing I would do, well, I mean, it's multi. I mean, that's a whole nother, you know, hour in a sense, but I'll try to be brief. The first thing I would do is get someone on board the team as early as possible who's going to deal with audience engagement. And that's the person I've kind of dubbed as the PMD or producer of marketing and distribution. And whether you call the person that or not doesn't really matter. I mean, depending on and that person, like if the person's only doing social media, I wouldn't really call that. And I don't mean only doing social media. I mean, I don't want to, you know, be dismissive of that because it's a lot of work and takes a lot of skill, but I wouldn't call that person a PMD. I think a PMD has to look at the whole distribution marketing landscape for the film and really, you know, strategize how that's going to work, not just, and use all avenues of audience engagement, you know, along the course of the film. So, but I would recommend that someone get someone on board, um, at least consulting, you know, if not actually engaging certain aspects of this audience engagement, audience development um, from an early stage, um, and that some of the resources be allocated for this. One of the films that I'm consulting on, you know, I created, I did a distribution and marketing plan and budget for them early on, and and what we did is we phased in the various different time periods of when this this work would take place. And so we did a, you know, we did a phase one of, you know, during, um, you know, distribution, you know, and just the lead up to the, to a festival run. And then phase two would be, you know, essentially the festival, you know, because I consider festivals you're in distribution, the phase two would be for the actual release. So that we actually, and they proposed that to the investors and were able to raise money for that phase one, um, you know, simultaneously with the rest of the money that they raised. Um, and then it's a matter of like they, you know, are, are working to finish the film and when, that film when that gets close then you know they'll raise the rest of the money so part of what we've been doing is you know doing organizational outreach etc you know or starting to do that now um as they're getting closer to the film to develop an audience for the film identify and develop the audience for the film so this person would be you know looking at you know starting social media depending if it's appropriate because different films the one thing i want to say is that every film's different and some films are a little sensitive to start being out into the public, you know, too soon. I just worked on a documentary about breast cancer and, you know, we had, uh, we had a hospital that we were working with and we didn't want to do anything on social media that would jeopardize our relationship with that hospital. So we held off on doing social media. But by the same token, I started doing organizational outreach very early on with breast cancer organizations um, and have created, you know, a relationship with those organizations from an early point, of, uh, early point in time. Time. So that's what I, you know, that's one of the things I would do in terms of allocating. And then you, you basically have to budget 
you have to take that money and budget it. And, you know, understanding the new landscape that it's not really prints and ads anymore that you're paying for, that you're allocating that P&A money for, that it's really going towards people to engage with social media, organizational outreach, and understanding. And, you know, I'm just, I want to go back to that every film's different because what we haven't talked about after the goals aspect was, to me, understanding of how you approach audience is the next step, and that is you have to first identify who your audience is, and that can change over time because you'll develop audience, you'll develop an understanding of your audience as the film proceeds. Secondly, you have to understand where that audience resides, where that audience gets information. Some audiences get information from social media, some audiences get information from organizations, different audiences get their information in different ways. Also, you have to think proactively of potentially how you're going to develop that audience, not just rely on a pre-existing audience. Third, which is related to this, what value can you provide to that audience? And that value is, first of all, obviously the value is that feature film is part of your value um, and making that the best as possible. But what other kinds of content and information, et cetera, can you provide to an audience on an ongoing basis? Um, and then lastly, understanding how that audience consumes media. You know, what kind of products, like how would you be able to either monetize or achieve your goals with the final project? Um, one thing I do want to say is that what we're talking about is a very project-to-project feature film mode of, of, this, of talking. And one of the things that the new landscape and the new methods of audience engagement really lend itself is to regularize content. Um, and that's, I think, why you see episodic content being so ga- gaining so much traction because it's a, it's a way for people to you know, develop a relationship with an audience on a weekly or monthly, however, you know, whatever that regularity is, um, so that they're constantly developing and giving content to that audience over time. Um, and that's something that's a little bit more difficult for, for feature filmmakers or feature films because what they tend to do is um, develop audience, you know, is work towards this one project that's released every three years or something like that and, you know, or three or four years and then they're starting from grand zero next. And so what I try to do is talk to filmmakers that even if they're it, even if they tend to be feature film makers and want to just stay in feature films, how do you develop an audience that can go from project to project? Anyway, that's a lot of ground that I've just covered. No, no, no. It's 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 really it's really good stuff. Um there are two things actually that I, I want to kind of pull out of pull out of what you said there. The first um, is about uh, PNA and that and that release phase. Mm-hmm. Um, do you recommend that? Uh, actually, sorry, let me go, go go back one step, which is how do you find the um, this PMD uh, or, the, or or this this person that's going to have that kind of market knowledge? Where would you recommend people start on their? Because obviously that's a great recommendation. I highly endorse that, and so. Just as a quick note to our audience, if, if they're looking for that kind of person, where would you recommend they, they look to find that kind of a person? You know, I, I know a few people, and it, it just depends on what kind of budget that there is, um, asking around, you know. Um, and that's, you know, it's actually something that um, if you were on that PMD, uh, if you saw that chat uh, with uh, Seed and Spark, I mean, I think that's kind of become an issue now. It's like, where are the PMDs in a sense? And it's a matter of that there hasn't really been, and this is something that, you know, I've tried a couple of different or looking at a couple of different ways of like potentially training these people. Um, I would potentially look at, you know, business schools. People have some marketing experience, you know, through business, you know, through business schools. I don't necessarily think that, you know, one of the things is I don't know whether filmmakers are necessarily the best people at this. I think, you know, getting people who have some, you know, inclination and desire to, you know, to, to, um, you know, to do, to do outreach and social media. And it's a matter of, you know, potentially then finding people with a skill set and then, 
you know, having, you know, uh, you know, supervising them in a way, you know, and, you know, that's one of the things I've done is, you know, for clients is that they, they get a, a pretty savvy assistant who has some outreach and social media skills and then kind of training them along the way. So a lot of it at this point, we're in the very, I'd say we're at the very early stages of this, of this work. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the wild west in a sense. And it's, there are a few people, you know, like myself, Melanie Miller, who's out there, Amy Slotnick, there's a number of people who are out there who have, you know, kind of put out their shingles as, um, as PMDs. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're out there, you know, doing work, but they're also, you know, doing other things in, in a sense. And because there aren't as many films yet who have, you know, saved the resources to be able to, you know, pay these people to do the actual work. So it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg kind of conundrum. Right. You know. Okay. So yeah. So the, 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 the next question on from that, that I want to pull out of what you were saying before was about the theatrical release. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a school of thought that says you should take a, a tranche of money, set it aside just as your suggestion you're, you're doing so that if you don't get picked up uh, at one of these, you know, top tier festivals where the buyers are at that you can actually uh, hire effectively a company that will act as your booker and book your film theatrically and use that as your springboard to raise audience to get written about because if your film isn't theatrical it's hard to get bloggers and uh, newspapers to to write about you so you can get all the publicity that comes along with that Um, so to basically take a tranche of money and allocate it towards hiring a booker so that you can get a theatrical release Mm-hmm. Where do you sort of fit in that as a general, uh, or wh- how, how does your thinking fit into that as an idea of good, bad, indifferent? Well, I, I, again, I'll just stress that every film is different, and how much of a theatrical release a film needs depends on whether the film has an audience that will go see a movie in a theater. You know, and um, yes, obviously, New York is an important you know, uh, is an important market to do a theatrical release in to get reviews. Um, And I do agree, you know, that it is hard to get reviews without a theatrical release, but then it's a matter of like, is the film review based? You know, there's films that are, have a built in audience that don't need reviews in order to generate an audience that, you know, can do very well, you know, without, you know, being review based. Um, And, um, and can do quite well theatrically or even in the marketplace without that. So it's, again, a matter of looking at what the, I'll just reiterate, what the goal, you know, what I mainly have people think about is, like, what are the goals? Who is the audience? You know, what resources do you have? And what makes most sense for this particular film in, tor- in terms of bringing it out into an audience? That being said, I think it's good to have resources. It just may not make sense to dump all that money into a theatrical release. Maybe it makes more sense to, you know, have a community screenings campaign and spend money on that. And that's a way to raise awareness for the film. And that will really potentially also drive, you know, digital ancillary sales, you know, or develop an audience and create discussion. It, it, again, it all depends on what the goals are for the film. And um, and how to allocate the resources properly to achieve those goals. And so having money for a theatrical is great and to hire a booker. But then it's like, how does that fit into the rest of what is being done with the what? What's the rest of, you know, what else is supposed to be done with the or is best to be done for the film? Uh, yeah, totally, does that make sense? Does that make sense? A hundred percent, totally makes sense, and uh, and definitely agree. I mean, obviously, one of the challenges in having these kinds of conversations is we try and be both generic and specific mm-hmm. at the same time, so it it doesn't always work. Just also because we're trying to cram so much information into this finite period of time. I realize, as you said before, we could certainly spend an hour or more or two days on mm-hmm. any one of these topics. But yeah. I, let me let me actually fast forward in, in, into one other sort of big big picture idea when is this when will this podcast air it will air uh well since it's going to be episode 61 so if you're (laughs) listening to this you can uh crafttruck.com forward slash bof 61 and it'll air next tuesday so we are recording this on what is it march 31st so it'll be uh the the coming up tuesday for those who are listening um so the a, a lot of the stuff that you know, people talk about when it comes to developing audience, you know, creating the plan, 
uh, selling product off of your website and finding your audience and engaging with them. It works so well when you're talking about a documentary, like so well, because you can find people, you know, who, and I've used this example before, you can find people who love, you know, to fly fish or ride their motorbike or, you know, or want to be engaged with causes like breast cancer, as you were talking about before. I don't want to say, I don't want to dismiss it as being like, it's, it's not hard. It is hard. Everything is hard, uh, but it's, but you can find those people. But the mm-hmm. difference between documentary and narrative or even genre, like the, the, I, I see there's being this really this, this dividing line between doing everything we're talking about for documentaries and doing everything we're talking about for a narrative-based film. And mm-hmm. so I just wondered if you could comment on sort of, you know, the challenges that are specific to narrative as opposed to documentary. Right. No, that's true. I mean, documentaries have an easier time of this in general. Um, but, you know, narratives do it as well. You know, um, you know Shane Carruth with uh, Upstream Color decided when he was going to go to Sundance that he wasn't going to accept the deal and he was just going to release the film on his own. Granted, he already had an audience, you know, and some track record behind him. Um, you know, but other films have, have, have also decided to do that and have decided to spend their resources, you know, to develop an audience that makes sense for their film and for that for their place in their, in their career path at that point in time. Um, you know, Ed Burns has done this a lot on his films. Like he takes these, you know, he took a number of his films out on his own. And again, it's Ed Burns and, you know, and that's, you know, a little bit of a, of a special case. Um, but I think you can find, um, you know, and again, narrative films are probably a little more reliant on a theatrical release than documentaries are. Um, but there's, there's pathways that you can find, you know, for, uh, for a narrative film that use these techniques. It's just different than, you know, how a documentary would approach it. And you, and I think in a general genre probably has a little bit of a easier path with this because there's already, you know, paths to genre audiences that exist and there's specialized blogs, et cetera. There's specialized communities around genre that exist online. But even for, you know, independent film, there's a a lot that's written and there's a community of people around. It's just a, it's a, you know, it's a smaller, you know, it makes it, you know, it's a it's a more crowded marketplace because you're basically within the film vertical where everyone wants to be. And I always suggest people get outside of the film vertical as much as possible um, to expand your audience. But you know, at some point, then you should also be thinking about how do you cultivate you know that that specific vertical and kind of get your your film out to them. You know, and it's. It is a little bit more difficult with a narrative film, and um, but you know it is possible, and people have done it. You know, and it's also a matter of finding: is there something that's you know particularly unique about your film, or maybe there's something particularly unique about your filmmaking style, and it's something that you you know I would say that that it's even more important for narrative filmmakers who you know, to start developing an audience and so that they cultivate an audience for a specific project. I, 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 um, Scott Cummings is an alumni of um, CalArts, and I saw him at Rotterdam recently. And he was, you know, he is a firm believer in, in embracing this approach. And, you know, he was the one who said that, you know, and one of the things that he utilized his Kickstarter for was to actually generate an audience for his work and to connect with people who would be, you know, excited about his approach to narrative filmmaking. Um, yeah, so it, it's so difficult these days. I mean, uh, you, I mean, obviously, you come back to time and time again. Every film is unique, but every film is also just equally challenging. You're, you're, mm-hmm. it's, it's even when you spent all your time trying to raise the, raise the money well then you got to make the film then you spend all your time trying to make the film well you still haven't released the film and all the time from the very beginning to the very end you got to develop social media social media and an audience just it's it's tough out there for a creative audience or mm-hmm. for creatives to find an audience so mm-hmm. um let me just if i may maybe one last question before i because i i know uh, we 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 have a uh a time uh, limit mm-hmm. for your time today when it comes to um, distribution, really, mm-hmm. let, like the, the money of it all, this is where I'm going to get my money back for my investors. One mm-hmm. of the things that you know, people are talking about these days a lot is that the return to creator uh, and the return to investors 
it's it's just it's really 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 poor across mm-hmm. the board. It's mm-hmm. the the percentages are dismal, right? What do filmmak what can filmmakers do to uh, either in their strategy or in their thinking to help protect their uh, their return on their investment when they're thinking about either figuring out how much you know whether wh- whether it's a budget side or whether it's a sales side or the combination of the both as you think about them obviously they're linked but uh, on the return to investor topic where do you guide people how do you how do you how do you start thinking about that well a um, couple things is one is to be very savvy about how much money you're raising for a particular kind of film you know and does you know does it make sense to spend a certain amount of money on a particular film um, you know, and maybe it makes sense to, you know, reduce the budget so that the ROI is a little bit safer in a sense. The second thing is also to allocate money for distribution and marketing, because that's going to separate you from, you know, other similar films and you're going to be, you know, in a better position than other films, um, who don't do that. You know, um, I hope that eventually everyone's thinking about this. So it's kind of equal in that, in that space. And to really just think about, you know, be, you know, I think it's a bit of a conundrum of, you know, filmmakers who, want to just create and create no matter what, and then kind of like understanding what the landscape of the marketplace is and what films do better in the market in current marketplace and what films don't do as well in the current marketplace. And, um, you know, I think there was a, uh, 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 I forget his name, the guy who runs Kino Nation, who was blogging on Ted Hope's site a lot. I, you probably had him on your podcast, potentially, I'm not sure. And I think he did a po- he did a blog post of the nine best-selling kinds of films that sell, nine types of films or ten types of films that sell best on VOD, you know, and, you know, it's just hard because, you know, you don't want to be in a situation of recommending to filmmakers that they make certain kinds of films because those are the kinds of films that will potentially have a greater return on investment because you want to, you know, you want to be able to think about film as an art and being, you know, a creative form. Um, by, By the same token, you know, there's also the business side and you have to be kind of savvy about that. I don't know whether I've answered your question or not, but um, no, know. I, no, no. I, I think look, that's a that's a great place to start for for people. I mean, look, I, I perfectly acknowledge. I just asked you how long a piece of string was, and you gave me a pretty finite answer. So that's pretty cool, um, <laughs> uh, John. I, I want to thank you again for your, your time. We uh, for anybody who wants to uh, check out any of the books uh, that you've written, they can do so at johnreese.com that's r-e-i-s-s j-o-n-r-e-i-s-s dot com and john i know you're on twitter where can people find you on twitter um at um john underscore reese basically at john underscore reese and then i'm also on facebook at uh, backslash john reese um fantastic uh any last thoughts comments you want to leave with our audience before we uh call this a day uh, no, I have a well. I have a workshop coming up in Los Angeles, but I know this that and that's in May. I don't know, and I do workshops, you know, and I speak around the world. So I'd hope, and I, you know, just look forward to people, you know, being in contact with me. People can contact me through the website, um, and um, you can download a free chapter of the book from the website from the blog. Uh, there's a way to do that and to take a look at it to see whether you're interested in it. And um, yeah, awesome. So yeah. All right, so that was John Reese. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, and now, as uh, mentioned at the uh, at the top of the show, uh, I was going to address a question that came in from at Bob underscore Wolseley, and uh, he tweeted to us uh, asking something to tackle on the Business of Film podcast and references an article in The Hollywood Reporter. Now, the name of the article, again, is called What's Behind a Europe Plan That Would Destroy in quotes, uh, the independent, uh, that would destroy independent film. So what I'm going to do, uh, for those who are, uh, following along and at home and haven't had the chance to, uh, to read the article, which by the way, if you want to read the article, I will link to it in the show notes and you can check out this episode, uh, forward slash BOF 61. And there'll be a link to this article. Uh, the article, which I actually think was a very well written article by Scott Roxborough of the Hollywood Reporter published on March 30th, 2015, um, he interviewed a lot of uh, very well-to-do industry professionals, um, I guess had a very 
good synopsis of what some of the issues were. Uh, and what I'm going to do now is just read the first paragraph, and then we'll, we'll dive into uh, the question at hand. Uh, a new proposal by the European Commission to change European copyright law, if its critics are to be believed, wreak havoc on the independent film business, both in Europe and Hollywood. Quotes, if it goes through, it would literally destroy the film business, says David Garrett of London-based uh, sales outfit Mr. Smith Entertainment, which handles DreamWorks titles across Europe. That's no exaggeration. It would be the death knell. So... Bob's question fundamentally is, what is this about, and will this actually destroy the independent film business? So what the article goes on to talk about is the nature in which film is financed in the independent film sector. So quick synopsis of how that, generally speaking, works. When you're trying to raise money for an independent film, you can go and pre-sell or sell your film territory by territory. So I can sell or pre-sell a film to Italy, France, Germany, Spain, pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, and there are two things you can do with those sales. A lot of the times you don't actually get the money up front. What you get is a piece of paper. And so if you're working with a foreign sales company, they would sell one or two territories uh, to establish a value, a baseline value, and then they would, they would give you estimates on what the rest of the world will potentially sell for. You take all those estimates and maybe a couple actual pre-sales, none of which is cash yet, and you bring it to a bank. And the bank will cash flow based on some discount rate, uh, the value of the sales estimates and sales that you have received. So when you do this on a territory-by-territory basis, you can see how you can quickly raise uh, by using uh, uh, your combination of both a bank and a sales company, the necessary financing to help you put together your film. This is predominantly the way independent film is financed. That, along with tax incentives and private equity. But for the most part, your foreign sales estimates and foreign sales attract a very large percentage of your overall film financing budget. This article is talking to, basically, the destruction of that model. What they're saying is, that when you make a sale, you have to be able to sell copyright in your film to each individual territory. And this, this legislation, this piece of legislation, is basically suggesting that there would be a pan-European copyright license, meaning you would sell it once and have the ability to stream it and watch your film or watch any film digitally anywhere in Europe. So instead of being able to go and sell territory by territory, the suggestion is that you would no longer be able to do that. That because there would be one pan-European copyright for your film, you'd only be able to make one sale. And if you did that, it would effectively strip all of the value out of uh, your foreign sales estimates because you would no longer be able to sell each individual respective territory. There would only be one copyright license for your film uh, across Europe. That's what the suggestion is. I personally don't believe that. Uh, I don't believe that that is the... I, I believe that there's a certain intention here to create an ability for, uh, for people, consumers, to effectively watch content anywhere they go in Europe and not to make it restrictive. But I it's so much more complicated than that that we, we can't dive into all of it right now. What we can do is we can talk a little, little bit about what copyright actually means here and why I don't necessarily think that this is the end of the, the independent film financing world. And I'm only going to bring up two examples here because I don't want this to go on too long. And obviously anybody who's listening to this, well, if you're interested, you know, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep on going here. So what is copyright is a fundamental question here. When you make a film, there's this thing called copyright. It is, you, you, well, you, you can't touch it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it. It's just, it, it exists. It's the, it's the underlying right to your property. When you make a film, you'll set up a production company, and that production company will own, let's say, 100% of the copyright. What the copyright really is, is just a bundle of rights that you can parse out and sell on an individual basis. So... If you make a film and you want 100% of the copyright and you sell 100% of the licensing rights 
of your film and distribution rights to, say, Lionsgate or any distributor for the entire world forever, well, you haven't necessarily given away your copyright. What you've given away is the licensing rights. The production company still owns 100% of the copyright of your film, it, but it doesn't have any value anymore. It's at that point been stripped of all of its value, and generally speaking in the industry, we consider that a bare copyright. So your distributor at that point basically has all of the value that that copyright would entail. The reason why that's important is you can still hold copyright, theoretically, of course, and make sales to a number of people without it, say, jeopardizing uh, the ability to retain the underlying copyright in, in, in your film. Now, what can happen, and what likely will happen, if you, if you want to project a few years out, is what you'll see is filmmakers, and which, by the way, they're already doing this with, on sites like VHX, filmmakers which have one central hub. So on VHX, I'm just going to give this as, as one example, because I think it's a very practical example in this case. VHX on their platform will allow filmmakers to have one hub for their film, yourfilm.com. And then what you can do is you can go and you can make a sale to a distributor in Germany, a distributor in France, a distributor in Italy. And we can, what you can say to all these distributors is you can say, look, instead of putting up uh, you know, separate sales or separate websites uh, where consumers can go and buy your product, uh, you, you sort of get a, little, a lot of fragmentation. You can't direct your world audience to one place. So what VHX has done is they said, look, you, filmmaker, can have one central hub for your product. We're going to call that yourfilm.com. And we're going to geo-track where people are buying things from. So if somebody's in Italy and they buy your product from Italy, we'll know that a sale came in from Italy. Same thing from France. If you're if physically in France and you buy the product from yourfilm.com, then we'll know the sale came from France. Why is this important? It's important because... What this article is talking about is the ability for a consumer to travel anywhere around Europe and for independent distributors to still derive value from that. What's important about that is that you, the filmmaker, can now basically tell any of these distributors that they can promote and spend money in their respective markets and that they will derive the financial benefit for that. And when you do that, what you effectively land up with is what this article is pointing to. A pan-European license, theoretically, uh, where independent distributors can still derive their respective values from the promotion and advertisement that they put into their to the films that they're buying from you in their respective territories. So, Bob, I, I hope that that sort of answers the question. Uh, again, I, as I mentioned before, there, there, there's a lot more to this whole thing than we're able to get into. But I, I, first of all, it's a great question. Um, I hope we touched on uh, an answer f- for you and for our listeners that um, that makes sense. We can certainly spend more time on these kind of topics if it's of interest. Uh, if you're listening to this and you have enjoyed or liked this uh, th- this kind of discussion, then let us know. Uh, hit us up at uh, Twitter uh, at crafttruck.com uh, or send us an email, coffee craft truck, and uh, we can spend more time doing things like this on the podcast, answering some of your questions. So have a great week, and we will see you next week on Business of Film. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Bob, for your question.